Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. I can do whatever I want to do because I don't have to rely on the record label saying, that's not the direction I'm going in. I can go in whatever direction I want to go in. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. This week on Life of the Law, we're going to bring you a special production of live law stories told from our show in Nashville, Tennessee. Hosted by Hal Humphreys, our show, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, explores music and law in Music City. In 1954, he and his brother borrowed 15 grand against an insurance policy and built one of the most iconic studios of all time, the Quonset Hut. It was the first studio in the area that would soon be known as Music Row. By some accounts, he's the most recorded guitarist ever. He's a living legend. He's a walking piece of history. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Harold Bradley. Music is played by our storytellers. Mr. Bradley, can you tell us a little bit about the Quonset Hut and how that came to be? Yes, sir. My brother Owen Bradley and I built our first studio at Second and Lindsley in 1952, and our second studio was in Hillsborough Village in 1954. And while we were at that location, a record producer from Decker Records in New York that we'd been working for came to Owen and said, Owen, I'm going to take my business to Dallas, to Jim Beck's recording studio, and I want you to come with me. And Owen asked why he was leaving Nashville, and Paul said, Castle Studios charges me $5 a playback, and they don't have any echo, and I want some echo on my records. Owen had just built a new house. He was the leader of a 32-piece band on a radio show, he had a 12-piece dance band, and we'd been doing some recording sessions, so we thought we were doing pretty good. And Owen said, Paul, Harold and I built two studios. Let's build you a studio, and I won't have to move. I'll put up $15,000, you put up $15,000, and Harold will keep working for nothing. <laughs> and uh, Paul said, okay, I'll guarantee you 100 sessions a year. At, at, at that time, a three-hour session was only $100. The tape was $7.50, and it was $2 for a safety tape. And there was no mixing. There was no overdubbing. RCA built RCAB two years later, and all the other music businesses settled on 16th and 17th Avenue. And that was kind of the beginning of Music Row, Hal. Very good. Mr. Bradley was the head of the Musicians Union here in Nashville for a long time. He was also the head of the international version of the uh, Musicians' Union. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why it's important? Well, uh, the, the Nashville Association of Musicians is over 110 years old. 
And it's one of 275 local unions that make up the American Federation of Musicians in the United States and Canada. And I was very privileged to have been the international vice president, the first officer elected from Nashville. Uh, and I held that office for over 10 years. And uh, the purpose of the union is to negotiate scale wages, benefits, and good working conditions for the musicians. Negotiations are by collective bargaining, which means the union meets with a prospective employer and exchanges proposals in order to reach an agreement. Sometimes you can do that in one day, and sometimes it takes years. Now, as the head of the Musicians Union, I understand you had an opportunity to travel to uh, Washington, D.C. and testify in front of Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it was my privilege to testify twice uh, in Washington on behalf of the artists whose recordings are played on XM and Sirius Radio. And uh, first you sit down with the lawyer in Washington and you write out a complete resume and uh, everything that you're going to say and you present it to the judges before you go there. Then you're there to present it in person. And you have to try to impress the three judges with your resume hoping that you can get their attention and keep their attention. And you talk about the creative process that the uh, musicians bring to a demonstration recording that eventually results in a master recording. And uh, the judges are a tough audience, and you're really not sure that they're they're with you because they are very solemn and they're kind of just uh, very unresponsive. So I found out the best... With, I found out the best way to finish my testimony and make my point was to play Willie Nelson's original demo of his song Crazy and then play Patsy Cline's version of Crazy. Now, I think we have both of those versions here. Let's, uh, let's see if we can get the Willie Nelson demo that they played in Congress. Crazy, crazy for feeling so lonely. So that's a demo that Willie put together. And then talk to us a little bit about the process from going from demo to the final production. We'll play the Patsy Cline version after that. Well, uh, if you listen to Willie's demo, uh, the... uh, Orchestra or the band and Willie are really not sure what the chords are, which is <laughs> it's it's all over the place. The bass notes all over the place. Uh, everybody's playing different chords. It's really rough. And then uh, when we went in to do Patsy, uh, we were just beginning to form the A team, and we didn't have any headphones. We didn't have any music, and. Uh, a normal session is three hours long, but we went four hours long, and the reason was Patsy couldn't sing the song. She had been injured in an automobile wreck about a month before, and my brother said there was one note she couldn't hold out. So he kept working on it and working on the arrangement. He'd come out and he'd say, Floyd, play this, da 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 blah, 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 blah. And we thought, oh, we got to play that, you know? And he kept changing the arrangement, and for four hours... We got to the end of four hours, and uh, he just made a track. We just did a musical track without any headphones, 
And we were lucky by that time we were doing three track and she was uh, in the middle, uh, able to be in the middle track later on. The band was split on left and right and the voices and had an open track and uh, within two weeks she came back and sang it in one take. He said when she got through with it, neither one of us wanted to do it again. <laughs> Let's hear that Patsy Klein version. And that's Harold Bradley playing guitar. Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. Hal, I, I might add that when I we played those in their entire length up there, and when we got through. Even the tone-deaf judge from Alabama said, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, Mr. Bradley, why are, these, why are these negotiations, why are these things important, what you do with the Musicians' Union? Well, th these laws uh, impact real lives. Uh, you have to have some order in business to uh, succeed. And we still have ongoing negotiations on behalf of pro professional musicians, including those who record music for sound recordings, film scores, video games, radio, television, symphonic orchestras. The career of a recording musician, myself excluded for some weird reason, is not that long. Your career is probably over at 45 or 50, and you're not trained to do anything else. So the recording musician must be compensated for their work as their music makes millions for artists, record, record companies, radio stations, displayed on television, and the movies. But it's sad when you think of a guy like Stephen Foster, the composer who wrote Camtown Races, Beautiful Dreamer, My Old Kentucky Home, Genie with the Light Brown Hair, who died in the Bowery in New York City with 35 cents in his pocket and a note that said, Dear Hearts and Gentle People. Many people published and sold his music, but they never paid him anything. We've come a long way in getting proper payments for artists, songwriters, and musicians. We still have a long ways to go. Mr. Bradley, thank you so much for coming to be with us tonight. Thank you, Hal. A guy named Hal can't be all bad. He wanted to go into management and ownership, but working his way up from gospel music DJ to ownership didn't seem like a likely scenario. So what's a young radio talent to do? Our next storyteller just enrolled himself in Howard University School of Law. He's of counsel with the law firm of Bone, McAllister, and Norton. He's a musician. He's a professor of law at Belmont University School of Law. I think he's best described as a renaissance man. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Lauren Mulrain. Good evening, everyone. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. 
A lot of you probably remember that as a very popular jazz song originally written and performed by Billie Holiday. Uh, 1941, I think, is when the recording was done. But it's more than a song to me. It really has become sort of a, a mantra for how I feel about the intersection of music, law, and entrepreneurship. We have a situation with artists, as Mr. Bradley was uh, telling you a little earlier. The challenge is always, how do we protect the artist and make sure they get paid for their work so that we can all be enriched, right? The bottom line is, if we allow them to do their work, then we all benefit from it. So I was one of those kids, or maybe I was not one of those kids, but that one kid who rode around in my neighborhood six, seven years old on my bicycle and had a transistor radio rubber band to the handlebars. Of course, I have to explain to my kids what a transistor radio is, right? Kind of like an iPod, right? Um, but I knew from a very early age this was something that moved me. I was, I was listening to the top 40, and I knew what the top 10 hits were. My sister and I used to buy 45s, and I'd look and see who wrote the songs. And it mattered to me who wrote the songs and who produced the songs. And after a while, I started seeing names over and over again. Who's this Gamble and Huff that I see on all these records? And I became a fan of great songs and great music. And that led me to where I, you know, I, I found that that was something I had to follow. So as a teenager, I started performing as a singer. In fact, I remember, um, we, this is back in the 70s, we did our first album one night. One night. No, really, one night. The whole album, recorded it, mixed it in one night. I was in a gospel group, and two weeks later, we were selling it. I mean, that's how we did our first record. But um, I always knew that's what I wanted to do. But meanwhile, I was, I was kind of battling with the left brain, right brain thing. Went to a, a science and math high school and went to University of Maryland as an engineering student. And I walked into the advisor's office that first day at University of Maryland, and he sat down with me, and he gave me my schedule for the next four years. And I walked out the room and said, I'm changing my major today. <laughs> and I actually changed to radio, television, and film because I wanted to be around music. I wanted somehow to be attached to that thing that, that uh, drove me, that gave me passion. So I studied radio, TV, and film, came out of school, and started working in radio. And while I was working in radio, I started getting a, a kind of a, a pull to understand the behind-the-scenes part of the music business, not just the talent side, but who's, who's owning this music, who's owning the stations, who's, who's doing the business that makes all of this possible. And that led me to going to law school. I went to law school knowing that I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. That was my goal all along. And came out of law school, worked for three years in D.C., and then moved down here to do music and entertainment law. And I've been here since. And, and over the years, I had a, a several experiences that really showed me exactly why I should be doing what I'm doing. First of all, when I was in school, in college, I was in various bands, and we'd make demos. We'd send them out to radio, I mean, to record companies, and looking for deals. And I remember specifically, I was in law school now, maybe my second year, and I got a letter from a record company. And the letter essentially said, thank you for your demo, but this is not the direction we're going in right now. Well, I'd sent the demo like four years ago. I wasn't going in that direction either, right? So I realized sort of what Prince realized later on, that it's good when you can control your output. 
You know, you create, you put it out. You let the audience dictate what they want to hear, and you work with that. And that's when I started looking at the entrepreneurial side of the business. Started my own recording and publishing, and, and I've done four independent records. But the bigger part of my business has been helping other artists. So I became an entertainment attorney. And once again, stories started coming up over and over again where I'd see the need for people behind the scenes helping folks with their business. I had one artist who was offered a, a deal. The artist had, I guess there were seven or eight members in the, in the group, and they were offered a deal by a, a major Christian label. And there were several things in the deal that I thought needed to be fixed. So I went back to the label and said, here are some things we want to change. And they said, the deal is what the deal is, take it or leave it. Well, it was an 8% royalty. The artist was probably going to come on with about 50 cents and have to split that seven or eight ways. The artist figured, we'll leave it, thank you very much. And the leader of that band actually became a very prominent record producer. So he was happy that he made that move and did not sign this deal that would lock him in. There are other stories that are really interesting too. When you talk about understanding commerce and understanding entrepreneurship, we're now in a position in the industry where it's almost impossible for an artist to get a deal unless they already show they have some value in the marketplace social media, independent recordings, and so on. But that wasn't always the case. Back in the 90s, Dave Matthews Band is a great example. They had done a couple of independent records back in the early 90s, had toured extensively, and had built quite, quite a resume for themselves before they, were attract, they were, got the attention of RCA Records. When RCA offered them the deal, they didn't have to take the baby deal that most bands get. Why? They didn't need the deal. Right? So ultimately, that's what I try to build my clients' um, business and, and, and repertoire into. Something that, yeah, we like this deal because we know you can take us from here to there. But even if we don't have it, we're already doing what we love. We're already making a living. And so that's, that's the element that I think is missing a lot of times from artists who don't handle the entrepreneurial side of it. So my business as, a, as an entertainment attorney, as a songwriter, as a producer... As a, as a professor of law students, is always built around create something that has value. So think about it like this. If you go to a, if you walk into a restaurant and you have nothing to offer, you probably get nothing to eat, right? But if you walk in there and you actually have 10 bucks in your pocket, you can probably get a meal. So the artist has to have something to bring to the table, Facebook, Instagram, whatever the, the social media may be that they can show, we have some value we bring to the table. We've done three or four records independently. We're selling copies. And that allows the artist to now dictate some terms and not be lost in the abyss where they have to take a deal that's, that's not going to be positive for them. So we had a couple of artists that I worked with over the years on some of my, um, my previous uh, firms that I worked with who understood this. One of them is a uh, gospel um, entrepreneur by the name of Bobby Jones, has a TV show on BET. And Bobby understood very early on that it wasn't about just making records. He actually makes records just for the fun of it. That's not where he makes his income. His income is from creating this television enterprise, which essentially has become a gatekeeper for the gospel industry. If you want to be known as a gospel artist in black gospel, you go through the Bobby Jones show. And so he's become that entrepreneur 
who now also owns other shows that are shown on BET. And that's the business side of knowing that it's not just making records, not just singing and performing, but having something that actually can generate income when you're not working. Um, another example of that is Cece Winans. Worked with her for a number of years, and we saw the value in her beyond. There's something that, that you hear all the time now in the industry called branding. You've heard that, right? Well, we saw the value in CC branding back in the 90s. Well, here's a lady who has a beautiful smile. Got her a deal with Crest. Beautiful skin and hair. Got her a deal with Revlon, right? So the records, yeah, the records sold well, but she didn't have to rely on that because there were other things um, coming to the table. So that's what I try to bring to, to my clients. And as an artist... I can do whatever I want to do because I don't have to rely on the record label saying, that's not the direction I'm going in. I can go in whatever direction I want to go in. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. Thank you very much. In the fall of 1977, I carved a Corsair aircraft into the top of my school desk. By the end of that year, our next storyteller and I had recreated the entire Battle of Midway across a line of desks in Miss Ford's second grade class. I've known this man longer than I've known anyone in the room. Please join me in welcoming John Allen. All the stories I could tell. Um, Hal wanted me to tell this particular story. And um, around 1995, I just ended a five-year stint doing a A&R artist and repertoire at Capitol Records um, and started a, a new gig at a music publishing company. And um, while at Capitol, as many of you in the audience know, um, doing uh, A&R for artists you're a mediator between the legal business side and the creative song-searching, producer-finding, um, helping develop artists into the, what they become for pop culture. And um, going into music publishing, there were uh, so many uh, divergent paths. You could work in any, at this particular publishing company. You could work in any genre, which was uh, great being in Nashville. And um, I was in the job about two weeks, and uh, at the time, I was also playing in a rock band, and I had a drummer who would uh, call me regularly at, at work, and um, I wouldn't take his calls. So he would tell the receptionist, tell him it's Garth Brooks or Eric Clapton. So I was in a couple of weeks at uh, this, this job, and the uh, receptionist says, Johnny Cash on line two for you. So I take the call. What, Bobby? And... Um, he literally said, it's, uh, it's Johnny Cash. <laughs> so um, it was unmistakable. And um, he uh, had, uh, my uh, boss at the time had uh, told him about this new hire, and me and a colleague were going to uh, go out and, uh, and uh, 
talk with Johnny out at the House of Cash in Hendersonville. So he was just laying forth those plans. And um, so, um, you know, you, you meet a lot of famous people in the, in the music business. And um, I didn't think much about it. On the drive out there early one morning, it was very early. And um, my colleague who's driving starts um, fidgeting and saying, what the hell are we going to tell this guy that he hasn't heard before? And I was like, what, you haven't met him yet? He's like, no. And um, so I immediately start getting extremely nervous. And, uh, I mean, uh, in 95, this was a point, um, Columbia had uh, infamously dropped him, and um, there was a, a certain period of what was next. And we get to the House of Cash, and um, it's filled with antiques they've collected over European tours, very impressive, very um, uh great space and uh june was there and she had just come from the store and and was telling us all about her herring experience she had had at the store and um we were very nervous and my colleague and i kept saying yes sir and mr and mrs cash and 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 john had this way of um putting immediately ease he was like son were you in the military i was no sir he's like well, let's dispense with the formalities i'm john this is june and uh june keeps going on about her story and I happened to look at, 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 at John, and um, he was in a black shirt, black slacks, and, and black socks. Very casual. And um, he gives, as June is going on and on, uh, I, I, I happen to look at him, and he gives me this exasperated look. like, And um, he uh, summarily, very politely, uh, uh, June, me and the boys are going to talk shop, and... Uh, and um, he asked us if we want coffee, and I think he would just buzz uh, Reba downstairs and uh, ask for a pot of coffee. Well, then he gets up. I say, sure, that would be wonderful. It was very early in the morning, and he makes us a pot of coffee, and I felt immediately bad. And um, at this point in his life, he had had, um, he had uh, tremors. So watching him make coffee and hand me coffee and my colleague, um, it was just uh, immediately he, he put you at ease. And um, you come to realize um, someone like John and why, why we were there, um, it's all about trust. When you uh, work with um, attorneys, um, label people, um, it's, they all pretty much do the same thing. It's who do you trust? And at this point, John was asking me pointed questions about a producer who had been approaching him, Rick Rubin. And... Um, Rick had had a great track record. Um, he just wanted to know and knew that uh, me and my colleague didn't really have an agenda when it came to Rick Rubin. So the songs that he was missing that Rick wanted him to cut were um, not your usual tunes. Nine Inch Nails, Soundgarden, Tom Petty, some other ones that didn't make the record. And, um, you know, I... I uh, in a very, to shorten the story, um, producer artists are about trust, mutual respect. So I told him about how, what Rick had done for the cult and brought them back to their, their essence and the red hot chili peppers with blood sugar sex magic and brought them back to who they were. And these were phenomenally successful records. And, um, he, he still had this, um, you know, look, but he would twitch his eye when you could tell, he wasn't quite buying what you were saying. So um, 
there again, it boils down to trust, and that's that's ultimately the point of um, what any of us do in the music business and and in dealing with uh, developing artists, whether they be new or um, already legendary, iconic artists like Johnny Cash and him. Um, what he proceeded to do with those um, records that he made with Ruben, I think, uh, firmly established him as the icon we all know today. And um, he, looking back at the time, I didn't appreciate it, but now, very human, uh, very real person. The people he surrounded him with, attorneys, um, business managers, um, it was about trust. Who do you trust? That's the point. Law is in her blood, but music is in her soul. She's a beetle file, a beetleophile beet. She loves the beetles. She's a partner in the law firm of Reed and Prestwood. She's as comfortable in the courtroom as she is in the control room. Please welcome Miss Allison Prestwood. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi. I'm very excited to be here. You know, when Hal asked me to do this, I thought, great, you know, love it. I love this kind of thing. And I, and I thought, well, when you speak, you should have a theme, right? And it never came to me. And I, I was just thinking backstage that maybe it's because if I'm speaking about my life, it's a theme in the making. And uh, so... But given that, you know, something does come to mind, and see what you think when I'm done, but I think it might be the concept of you love something so much that you can't not do it, or you're so driven to do something that you can't not do it. Um, when I was two or three, I already had a guitar in my hand. There's a picture of me with a tiny uh, plastic guitar with Popeye on it, and I was clutching it. I must have gotten it for Christmas that year. And uh, at the same time, my mother, who was a piano teacher, was teaching me to read music using flashcards. So very early on, I had a love for, for this and a beginning of an understanding. And you fast forward four years, I'm in first grade, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Now, Everybody talks about the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and it's, it becomes trite. But I was there sitting in front of the TV, and uh, you know, I must have heard the, bur the buzz. And they come on, close your eyes, and I'll kiss you. Know, and I, whoa, it, it hit me so hard. And I, it, you know, all the girls were screaming, and there was all that business. And I was a little girl, but it didn't hit me so much in the screaming for mania, as it hit me in, wow, I want to do that. I want to, that's a vision for me. So this, this young girl with the beginning of a passion now had a vision. And then when I was 13, I'd been playing guitar, but I saw a copy of Paul McCartney's bass and arts music shop. And my dad wouldn't buy it for me because he said, you have enough guitars. Dad is a bass. He didn't get all that. 
But I bought it myself on time. I think it was $8 and something for 12 months. And that got me going in bands. So high school played in bands. Went to the University of Alabama. I got in the jazz ensemble, and, uh, I, which opened my eyes to a lot of things. <laughs> but among those things was improvisation. And something really interesting that I've carried with me ever since now, bass and drums and, and those kind of instruments are considered support instruments. But I learned somewhere in the college era, era in that jazz ensemble that the bass has a quality of being able to infuse energy, like to change the energy of a song, not from the top like a soloist would do, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. And it's a very powerful feeling. And that was a really good thing to learn. <laughs> uh, from that point, I went to Atlanta, and I played in bars, in bands, five or six nights a week for, you know, four sets a night for about 12 years. And uh, that's where I got, we call it getting our chops together. I would say I got, definitely got my chops together, got my endurance together, got my, uh, a fair idea of a stage presence together, I think, there. But there was still something missing. Because when you have your chops together, you don't necessarily have a voice yet, or you don't have an impact. There was something missing, is all I knew. Plus the fact that the nightlife is not really me by nature. So I thought, well, Nashville. You know, I, I could do that. I think I could do that. I could play in studios. You know, I'm good, <laughs> I thought. So I moved here, and uh, one of the first places I went was the Bluebird on a Monday night, and it was Mike Henderson's blues band, and Glenn Wharf was playing bass. And he and Michael Rhodes were, at, were the two guys playing on most of the records here at that time, and actually they probably still do, but just terrific bass players. So very early on here, I realized there is good and there is Nashville good. And I was not Nashville good. So, uh, but I did have the passion still. I was driven. It was almost the challenge. You know, I, I'm here. I could go do something else. But I'm going to see if I can really do this thing. So I, I listened to a lot of records with these guys. I would look and see who played on what. And how did they do this? And, well, I can do that. And I would try to imitate them somewhat. And, oh, also... <laughs> When you come to Nashville, you pretty much are going to have to tour some. And although I wanted to be a studio player, I was lucky enough still to get some good touring gigs. Um, early on was Rodney Crowell. And uh, <laughs> I learned the, the two basic rules of touring right away. Rule number one, sleep with your feet toward the driver. That way, if he, if he slams on the brakes, you won't break your neck. <laughs> Basic rule number two, only go number one on the tour bus, <laughs> which is, you know, a disturbing rule to learn, but I mastered those two rules and, and was on my way, and after that, I guess I played with Patty Loveless and Sean Colvin and Olivia Newton-John and a few other people, and also, um, somewhere early on in moving here, I gave myself the goal I wanted to be one of the top five bass players in five years. It was a lofty goal, but I did it anyway. I mean, I, I had the goal anyway. <laughs> yeah, so 
while I was touring and working into the studio scene, you start low. You know, there's no, no shortcuts here. You start low when you, you show up, you play well, you, you, you know, you try to be funny, you try to be nice, you, you know, just have your act together. And time goes on and you, you start to climb the ladder a bit. And right around, I guess, 2002 uh, was my first nomination for an uh, ACM award. Academy of Country Music for Bass Player of the Year. And I looked, and there were five names. And I thought, my goodness, I think I did it. <laughs> you know, it's a subjective standard, but, you know, I could say I actually did it. And uh, I loved, loved, loved playing music here. Still do. I started noticing Music Row on 16th and 17th. Fewer cars, fewer cartage trucks, you saw the big companies buying the smaller companies. I saw my income, you know, go down a little bit, frankly, and, and the number of sessions go down. And my dad was a lawyer, and around, I guess, Christmas of 2004, I suggested to him, what if I were to go to law school? And I don't really know what prompted it, but we just had the conversation, and so I took the LSAT fairly quickly after that, which is the entrance exam, to find out if your, your grades are good enough to get in law school. And I got in the National School of Law with the attitude, if I hate it, I quit. I'm still a musician. You know, what? A, I have nothing to lose. And so I was scheduled to start August 22nd, 2005. It was a Monday, my birthday, my 48th birthday. <laughs> and... Uh, so I got a call that my dad was in the hospital on the Thursday before that Monday. And he had, some, he had emphysema and some other issues. And I went down to Montgomery where he was, and I visited him in the hospital. And uh, we watched a baseball game. We watched the Red Sox that Friday night. And I had talked to him a little bit about his law school experience. And he said he was... He said he was uh, I asked him, Were you first, weren't you first in your class? And he, he said, yeah, sure, yeah. And he was downplaying it, but he admitted to it. And uh, we had a good conversation. I left the next day. I said, Daddy, I guess i got to go home and get ready to start law school. And he said, okay, Suge, well, I'll see you soon. And um, that was Saturday, school starting Monday. Wee hours Monday morning, I get a call from my sister saying, your dad, you know, Daddy is in is in uh, intensive care, and, you know, hang on, I'll call you back. And she called back, and she said, you need to get down here now. So I jumped in the car, and I got about one exit, and uh, she called back and said, um, Lally, that's my nickname, Lally, uh, he's gone. And, uh, you know, I, when you're, all this time, we had been, we had a good relationship, but we were about to have a really good connection with this law. And, you know, I was sort of a person in a ship. And in, in law school, he would maybe be like a rudder to me. And, and here, all of a sudden, bam, on the very first day of law school, he was gone. Um, so I'm, I went to Montgomery and missed the first week of law school. And I came back and I thought, wow, you know, what do I do? And something is just a drive that you can't not do or something, made me think, well, he was first in his class. You know, maybe I can do that. You know, maybe I can. 
And I hadn't been to school in 25 years, so that was kind of another lofty goal. <laughs> um, I got in and I started, gosh, you know, I kind of like this. And I worked really hard. I'd play in the studio in the day and study at the same time on the music stand. It would be a chart here and the notes here. And I uh, managed, to, managed to reach my goal. And uh, so I graduated first in my class and felt like I'd really honored him a, a lot that way. Thank you. Um, lucky enough to get out and, and meet a woman named Lori Reed. And uh, she, I'm lucky enough that she introduced me to a guy like Phil Newman, who's in the audience tonight. And he gave me my first chance, and, and I, I joined Pereer Newman Wharton Law Firm. Um, I guess five years ago, and then Lori and I now have Reed and Prestwood, and I do divorce and post-divorce. And uh, but I still play. I played with Amy Grant some this summer, and and uh, I still get to to fuel all of my passions. <laughs> and as far as what goes, what comes next, I don't know. I guess maybe there'll be a new drive, but or maybe there won't. Maybe it's trying to just be good at this. I don't know. But. Uh, I really appreciate your being here tonight, and I really appreciate your listening to my story, and I, I hope I'm right about my own theme. I don't know, but and I want to thank Hal for inviting me tonight. Thank you. Have you ever held a glass of bourbon up to the setting sun? Our next storyteller and I have held a number of glasses up to the setting sun. But it all started with an argument. It was hot that night on the patio at Rumors 12 South. Dead soldiers of wine and empty tumblers lined the table, and as will happen in situations like that, deep and personal conversations unfolded. On the road is the best book ever written, he said, Jack Kerouac is full of shit, I said. The argument was heated, and it has gone on now for more than 12 years. Please welcome my best friend and our next storyteller, Jason White. The Oppenel family has been manufacturing their classic folding knives in the Savoie region of France since 1890. Oppenel's design of the French farmer's knife, as it's often called, has won many awards over the years and is on display at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Picasso carved his sculptures with one. I purchased an Oppenel number 12 on the internet for the princely sum of 1995. The Oppenel number 12 has a blade length of four and three-quarter inches, which I found ideal for slicing Gruyere cheese and the fine French baguettes baked by my friend Kim Green, who together, <laughs> who together with her husband Hal own the property next door to my fishing cabin on the Buffalo River in Perry County, Tennessee. Tennessee law prohibits the carrying of a knife with a blade length of over four inches. Buffalo River, where you rollin'? 
about easing on downstream Just me and you in a tippy canoe In my Buffalo River dream I awoke at 3.30 a.m. on November 11th, 2011 To catch a plane to South Dakota Where I was scheduled to play a concert that night at the State University. Still slightly inebriated from the previous night at the Bluebird Cafe, I sleepily got myself dressed, threw a change of clothes into a knapsack, grabbed my guitar, and jumped in a cab bound for Nashville International Airport. After checking in, I proceeded to the TSA security checkpoint, where I dutifully removed my shoes and my belt and placed my guitar and knapsack on the conveyor belt. After I passed through the metal detector, the TSA agent asked me if he could examine my knapsack and if there was anything sharp in there that might hurt him. I replied that there might be some Gruyere cheese in there, but it wasn't sharp enough to hurt him. He did not laugh. What he did do was to reach into my knapsack and pull out my Opinel number 12. I apologized profusely and told him that I'd been at my fishing cabin on the Buffalo River the previous weekend and had completely forgotten to take my Opinel number 12 out of the backpack. He seemed to sympathize with my plight and told me it was no problem, but that I'd have to leave my Opinel number 12. I told him it only cost me $19.95 and that I'd be happy to leave it there, apologizing again for my absent-mindedness. As I was putting my shoes and my belt back on, I was approached by two Nashville Metro police officers. You the one with the Bowie knife, said the first officer. Well, it's not really a Bowie knife, I replied. It's an Opinel number 12. I used it out in the woods last weekend to cut some Gruyere cheese and some French bread. Well, you ain't in the woods now, are you, son? He asked. No, sir, I said. You got any outstanding warrants? No, sir. You ever been under arrest? No, sir. Well, you are now. I said, I am? Yup. I was handcuffed and led to a room in the airport where I had my mugshot and fingerprints taken, my person searched, and my Miranda rights read. I was then charged with carrying a knife with a blade length of four and three-quarter inches. Denise, the tour manager, managed to talk the officers into letting me get on the plane to South Dakota in exchange for her promise that I was no threat to national security and would show up for my arraignment later that month. When I returned home and on the advice of a friend, I went to meet an attorney named Mr. Purloin. Mr. Purloin, upon hearing my sad tale, said that for $2,500, he gave me a $500 discount off the normal price of $3,000 as I was the friend of a friend. He felt confident he could mount a defense that would get me off without having to go to the Hooskow. I wrote him a check for $2,500, and he smiled and shook my hand and said he'd see me at my arraignment. On the day of my arraignment, I put on a jacket and tie and headed to the courthouse in downtown Nashville. It was cold that day, and I had to park about a mile away. When I finally walked in the courthouse, I found a security checkpoint, manned by two officers who bore an uncanny resemblance to the officers who'd arrested me at the airport. 
I took off my belt and placed it, along with my keys and my wallet, in a plastic tray and started to walk toward the metal detector. Whoa, 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 said officer number one. You can't come in here with that. With what, I asked. With that chain, he said. My wallet, which I guess some would call a biker's wallet, has a one-foot chain on it that attaches to my belt. I don't wear it to look like a biker. I wear it so bikers can't steal my wallet. It's just a wallet, I said. You know what you could do with that, said officer number one. You could wrap that chain around your fist and bust my larynx. I said, I could? He said, yup. Then he called for Marty, officer number two, to come over and give his opinion on the matter. Oh, no, 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 said Marty. You can't come in here with that. You could sneak up behind me, wrap that chain around my neck, and choke me dead. I said, I could? Yup. The officers told me they couldn't keep any weapons there at the checkpoint and that I'd have to take my wallet and chain back to my car. As I was almost late for my arraignment and the car was a mile away, I walked outside and hid my wallet in some bushes and came back in, panting heavily so they'd think I'd run all the way to the car and back. After I cleared security, I walked down the hall to be arraigned and found myself standing in line with about a hundred other people. I thought to myself, this place looks like Darwin's waiting room. There were all kinds of scary-looking people of all shapes, sizes, races, and sexes, and all in a surly mood. I'd say about half of them spoke English. I was the only one in a jacket and tie, which made me feel a little out of place. The guy next to me, who was about 6'10", and as far as I could see, completely covered in tattoos except for his nose, eyed me up and down. I was tempted to say, uh, you missed a spot, but decided to keep quiet. What'd you get busted for, he asked me. I was about to tell him about my Opinel number 12, which has a blade length of four and three quarter inches and is ideal for slicing Gruyere cheese and French bread. But instead, I just did my best Jack Nicholson and said, unlawful possession of a deadly weapon. How about you? He seemed to think that was pretty cool, as did all the other people within earshot, and we were all pals. The arraignment was pretty painless aside from the long wait. I pleaded guilty to carrying an illegal weapon and was given a court date. Mr. Purloin, my attorney, showed up late and asked me how it went. I said it went okay, and he smiled, and he said he'd see me in court and not to worry. When my court date finally arrived, I finally arrived, I again put on a jacket and tie and made the trip downtown to the courthouse. The place was packed with a motley crew of well over a hundred of my fellow scofflaws. Mr. Purloin arrived late and found me sitting on a bench waiting to be called. He said he had a good plan for my defense and hoped I wouldn't do any time. Then the district attorney walked in wearing a seersucker suit and straw hat just like Frederick March in Inherit the Wind. As the DA was shuffling through his papers and preparing his arguments, Mr. Purloin seized his moment. He walked up behind the DA, slapped him on the back, and smiled. The two chatted for about five minutes. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but Mr. Purloin seemed to be telling a story about golf because he kept swinging an imaginary nine iron as he told the story. The two of them had a big laugh, and then Mr. Purloin gestured in my direction and whispered something into the DA's ear. The DA nodded, and Mr. Purloin shook his hand and smiled and walked back, walked back toward me with a wink. 
While I was waiting to be called, I looked all around the courtroom. It was chaos. There was only one other guy in there who had a lawyer with him. There was a public defender who looked like he'd just graduated law school, who seemed to be representing about 30 or 40 defendants. There was a large contingent of Spanish-speaking people who looked very confused as an interpreter yelled out instructions to them. Half the poor bastards had no representation at all. Finally, the judge came in, and we all rose for the hear ye, hear ye's. Then he smacked down his gavel and called the first case, which was the other guy with the lawyer. I guess he'd paid the full 3000 instead of the discount price. I was called next. The DA and Mr. Purloin approached the bench. Some whispered words were exchanged, and the judge promptly sentenced me to 16 hours of community service at the nonprofit charity of my choice. Then he looked at me and made a short speech about not wanting to see me in his courtroom again and that he hoped I'd mend my ways. And of course, he said, holding up an evidence bag containing my trusty Oppenel number 12, you'll have to relinquish your weapon to the court. I will, I said. Yup. I was tempted to say that all the Gruyere cheese and French bread in the county just breathed a sigh of relief, but decided to keep quiet. Mr. Purloin smiled and shook my hand and told me to call him next time I got in trouble. I had to pay some court costs, and after I did my 16 hours of community service, making phone calls for the First Amendment Center in Nashville, the record of my misdeeds was expunged. And when it was all over, I thought about the whole affair and what I'd learned. I was relieved that I didn't have to go to jail, but I couldn't help thinking about all those poor bastards in that courtroom that did go to jail, many of them for doing something absent-minded or careless, and just because they didn't have $2,500 to get out of it. Thomas Jefferson once said that the most sacred of the duties of a government is to do equal and impartial justice to all its citizens. Ambrose Bierce, on the other hand, defined justice as a commodity that the state sells to the citizen as a reward for his allegiance, taxes, and personal service. After spending a morning in a General Sessions courtroom, I have to say that Jefferson was right in theory and that Bierce was right in reality. They say that in America, everything's for sale. Seems to me some things shouldn't be. One thing that is for sale, though, is the Oppenel number 12. I bought another one on the Internet a few days later for the princely sum of $15.95. It wasn't just for sale. It was on sale. My new Oppenel 12 now resides permanently, I hope, at my fishing cabin on the Buffalo River in Perry County, Tennessee.
Thank you, Hal. Live in Nashville, Blood, Sweat, and Tears was produced by Hal Humphreys and Kim Green. You can hear more of their work on their podcast, Pursuit. Jonathan Hirsch produced our feature episode. Thanks to Life of the Lost production team, Alyssa Bernstein, Ashley Cleek, Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel, and Shawnee Avaram for their behind-the-scenes support, and to Howard Gelman, our engineer. If you like stories about the law, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. We're in production on stories on the appointment of judges to U.S. district courts, challenges to reproductive rights in Iowa, and the influence of money and politics on environmental law. Take a few minutes to listen to all of our episodes and then post a review on iTunes. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Sign up for our newsletter and get a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law with notes from our reporters, updates on stories you may have already heard, and a preview of our upcoming episodes. You can sign up at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the panoply network of podcasts from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Proteus Fund, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute, make a donation, and we'll send you one of Life of the Law's thank you gifts, a beautiful mug, a bright red reporter notebook, or a handy canvas bag. Next on Life of the Law, part two of our 2016 series, A Fair Fight for a Fair Court. I I never felt more like a hooker down by the bus station than I uh, did when I was running uh, for the Supreme Court. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.